Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. East Asia's security environment is changing rapidly. China's power and confidence is rising, the US increasingly introspective, and uncertainty abounds about its power and purpose, as a new equilibrium has yet to be established in the security order. So how can middle-ranking countries like Japan and Australia manage their interests? Here to discuss this issue is Nick Bisley, Professor of International Relations and Head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. Hello to you, Nick. Hi, Matt. And also here to discuss these issues is Dr. Rebecca Strating, Lecturer in Politics at La Trobe University. Hello to you, Beck. Hi, Matt. They are the two authors of Latrobe Asia's first policy brief, available on our website, latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia, and it's been written with Chisako Masuo and Nobuhiro Aizawa of Kyushu University. So we'll start with the established order in Asia at the moment. The security order has been structured around a continued US presence, but how is that now being challenged? The basic settlement, geopolitically speaking, that ended the Cold War, so that's say. Soviet Union collapses in 1991, and over a few years, there was sort of a question as to whether the US might bank the peace dividend, pack up its bat and ball and retreat back and get out of Asia because the Soviet menace was gone. China was clearly heading down a path of, of economic reform and engagement with you know the outside world was not an expansionary revolutionary power. And there seemed for some, you know, beyond a, a couple of little points, maybe the reason for the US to stay in the region was not as it had been. Mm. Within a couple of years, um, those doubts were put aside by mid to late 1990s. America issues a series of public policy statements and reports that says, we're going to stay here, forward deployed, be the predominant military power in the region indefinitely, so that the presence the US had during the Cold War is basically going to continue, in which it would have very significant military power, both sort of land-based and sea-based, headquartered principally in Japan, but also in South Korea, and that the US would continue essentially to keep the peace of the region. And there was a whole bunch of reasons why it wanted to do it, um, least of which was by staying there and continuing the status quo, the kind of settled bargain that was struck in the 1970s would be continued, in which Japan would not have to go and become a significant military power to defend itself. And then from that, if the US goes and Japan really muscles up because it has to defend itself, then the PRC would have to take steps to defend itself. South Korea would probably do the same and you'd have a, a serious change in how the region's military balance would go. And that's basically been the deal that the US would keep the peace. Everyone would agree to it. The Chinese weren't thrilled about it, but on balance, the benefits to them of the whole package far outweighed the cost of having to put up with America being number one because it also kept Japan down, it kept South Korea, it kept everything kind of in check and they could get on with things. And we thought for a while that that was just going to be how things were. The US seemed happy to pay for it. The rest of the region seemed happy to accept it. And really until Xi Jinping comes to power in China in 2012, it looked like the PRC was happy to accept a long-term military presence of, of the US. Mm. But with Xi has come a significant shift in how China thinks about its place in the world and particularly how it thinks about the region. And it sees a region in which America is the predominant power, in which America has maritime hegemony, that's to say the ability to command the high seas, as something with which it is not comfortable to live in the longer run. And so you're beginning to see a China push back on that to make good on historical claims that it puts forward. Now, there's a certain degree of questions about how legit these historical claims are to contested territories in the South China Sea, the East China Sea and elsewhere. 
But China has got this sort of dual-pronged approach of one, reclaiming what has been lost, so the sort of historical nationalist claim, and also a strategic claim, which is to push the US back from its maritime approaches. And what that means is now a contest, where in the past you had a kind of accepted geopolitical balance and a security order that was very settled and stable. You've now got a situation where that's in doubt. And as you said at the intro, the question marks about, you know, what's the US here for? Is it prepared to spend this much money? Mm. You've got Donald Trump and America first, and why should we pay for our allies and all that sort of yeah, stuff? Yeah, America's starting to ask those same questions. Why are they there? Should, is so you, it their responsibility to spend all that money? Yeah, so you had rising China, assertive China under Xi Jinping, pushing, and then the election of Trump has now brought back those, kind of like those doubts we had in the early 90s. Was America going to stay? What's it really here for? Does not want to bank the savings that it could by withdrawing? And that's produced this very unsettled circumstance that we're in now. I think there are real question marks, though, about this idea that the United States is declining in its presence in the region because, you know, the US is still very much involved in disputes in contested Asia. For example, uh, earlier this year, we saw various summits taking place with South Korea and North Korea and the United States playing a significant role in that, um, particularly in regards to trying to get China on Mm. board. But for regional states like Australia and Japan, I think there's a real concern for what the future role of the United States is, but also in how China is challenging existing institutions or building new institutions that challenge the sorts of institutions that were led by the US and that contributed to the order that underpin Australia and Japan's peace and prosperity for decades. Um, Institutions such as the Belt and Road Initiative, institutions like the AIIB, these are seen as sort of parallel sets of economic uh, multilateral organisations that present, you know, a kind of challenge to the existing economic institutions. Mm. Uh, Also, there's the normative contests around, particularly um, the maritime sphere, South China Sea, East China Sea, how the actions of both China and the United States are contesting the so-called rules-based order. Uh, And I think that these are, you know, significant questions for regional powers such as Australia and Japan. So is the idea that Australia and Japan should be more self-reliant while we encourage America's presence in the area and their, their continued activity, we shouldn't count on it always just in case? I think there's a couple of things. One is, firstly, to not forget the basic fact that it's not just a two-horse race or a two-player game mm. that what goes on in the region is is the function of a whole range of different players. Yes, you've got these two big guys potentially belting each other out to set things up. But what the others do, and there's lots of others, you know, there's Japan and Australia, but there's also South Korea, there's Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, and plenty of others. And these are countries of significant scale who can, if they work together, and particularly if they can work together in key areas, can play an important role in seeing a kind of new playbook, if you like, what are the new rules of the road going to look like? There's also that sense of we've become kind of complacent, I think, over a long period of time that mm. the because of the constancy of the US presence, we've sort of come to the view that they'll always be there. They'll always do this stuff. They'll provide these goods both to each of us individually, Japan and Australia will protect you, but also to the region as a whole. We will keep the peace. We'll balance all of the competing interests. We'll keep the sea lanes open. And we just thought they'll always be there. They'll always do it. 
And now we've got the situation where, oh, actually, they may not always do that. They may think of their interests differently. And we've got to begin to do things. And because each of us at the moment, that's to say in Australia or Japan and others, are so far behind what we really ought to be doing that we have to work collectively, even if we're just mitigating risk. Not that we need a fully planned B, but we just we can't always assume that the US is there and going to always do the same thing. And also, it's been wanting us to do more for a while anyway to offset the costs of the regional role that they've been playing. And so we've begun to explore what is it that we can do that can provide this sort of new support mechanisms and possibly support mechanisms for not just the geopolitical status quo, but as Beck was saying, the kind of ideas and principles about how the game is played. All right. And and even if it's a plan B, there are benefits to be had from being more assertive and coordinating our responses and presence in the area. It shouldn't be a plan B. That's yeah. the problem, is that Australia and Japan should never have been in a position where it was so reliant upon one alliance relationship. But that is the position that particularly Australia finds itself in. And it's, there's a level of path dependency that means that it's really difficult for foreign policy makers to, um, to look beyond the alliance and to establish sort of much deeper relations with other states. So there is kind of a lip service that's paid to diversification. This is a popular term at the moment in international relations. Um, nobody seems to really uh, explain it, but <laughs> diversifying relationships. So, for example, Australia's its embrace of the Indo-Pacific concept is about reaching out to India as a way of looking to India potentially to help um, contain the rising power of China, but also Australia's approach to ASEAN and trying to um, engage with those 10 very diverse states within that institution. There was the ASEAN summit earlier this year, which was that nod to trying to develop relations outside of the traditional security alliances. Mm. Uh, But the problem is, is that for second tier powers like Australia, there's only limited diplomatic resources to go around. So it's all very well and good to say we're going to have stronger relationships with states in this, you know, massive region that is the Indo-Pacific. But serious decisions have to be made about how those resources are allocated and prioritised. So this policy brief comes at it from the direction of Australia and Japan should be working together. Why is Japan a good option for a close relationship for Australia and what would a coordinated response look like? There's a couple of reasons why Japan's a good partner for Australia. I mean, apart from the fact that we are both democracies, we're both allies of the United States, we're quite good economic partners. Japan, it's often forgotten, Japan remains Australia's third most important trading partner, very significant source of inbound FDI, and strong people-to-people links and all of that sort of stuff that foreign ministers will rattle off when they go to Tokyo. Good ballast there for the relationship. But I think also we are both maritime trading nations. We're both quite exposed to, as Beck was saying, to the risks of dependence on the US for security. We are both good by sea. That that too. Um, (laughs) And as Peter Varghese is sort of fond of saying, the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, we're both countries that can neither bully or bribe our way in, in the international system to get things our way. We have to set rules, we have to work cooperatively, and we have to kind of get proactive because we're these second-tier powers that we're not minuscule and the nothings of the international system. And we've got a good operational history and diplomatic history of doing things together. So mm. the foundations are good, the shared interests are solid, and the capacity to share the right level of interest to be able to do the resource allocation stuff that, that Beck's talking about. Because I think one really important point that we haven't in Australia quite grasped yet is that 
for Australia and Japan to do more in the security area or for Australia and India to do more or whatever it is, we need to spend a bit more and mm. we need to reallocate some of That's our resources right. because there's a bit of a sense that we, we could just kind of move the things, pieces of the puzzle around and it'll all be okay. Whereas actually we've probably, with the growing security relationships so far since roughly 2001, I think we're almost at the limit of what Australia and Japan can practically do together in the security domain without saying, actually, we're going to take another step and invest some resources or reallocate them. I mean, it doesn't have to be net new spending, as they like to say in Canberra. It can be saying we're taking money from here to there. Mm. But at the sort of basic level of capabilities, at the level of diplomatic initiatives or whatever they may be, there needs to be some more resource put into this to make the potential and the sort of platform that's there make some meaningful contributions. And that's, I guess, the point we're trying to make in the policy brief is to say, there's a place for this, so we can make a difference. There's a good moment to do this. It's in our interest to do it and make some suggestions about what needs to be done. But then the real kind of policy heft is going to come from the political will and the resource allocation to make it happen. One of the contemporary issues that has affected the relationship between Australia and Japan is the submarine tender. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, Japan was expecting that the $500 billion submarine build would... 90 billion. Well, ninety billion. <laughs> sorry. From memory, you actually tipped that Australia would give it to them at the I time. Did. Yeah. I did. I lost a bet on that to a well-placed senior official. <laughs> so, I mean, in the context of what we're talking about here, and noting just how important the relationship between Australia and Japan is, I mean, that decision led to a bit of a diplomatic freeze mm. between these states. So, in thinking to the future. Is it in Australia's interest to avoid making those sorts of decisions when it comes to potentially offending Japan or potentially sort of undermining its expectations? Uh, was that clumsy diplomacy? And what sort of lessons can we draw from that? The Japanese will be glad to see the back of Malcolm Turnbull. They entirely blame him. Mm. Um, and it was put to me in no uncertain terms by officials in Japan shortly after it all happened that Prime Minister Abe took this personally, that he'd been given effectively a kind of gentleman's agreement from Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister, which he took to be, in the sort of modern political idiom, this was an agreement from the leader of the Australian government to the leader of the Japanese government and not from Tony Abbott to Shinzo Abe. Yeah. Uh, and he expected that that agreement would be honoured and when it wasn't, you know, the deep freeze we're currently enjoying with China, we enjoyed from Japan at the government to government level. The government was bending over backwards essentially to placate Beijing saying, oh, if we buy a submarine from Japan, it's just like buying a Toyota. You know, you, there's nothing else around. There's no strategic relationship. There's just nothing to try to say, if we do buy it, that's not going to mean anything. But the moment we go and buy the fantasy French sub, which incidentally does not exist and probably never will, it's like, oh, we have a strategic partnership with France now, and they're going to be partners in the Indo-Pacific in the rules-based order. And it's like, hang on, you know, did you think we not pay attention to this? But seriously, to Beck's question about was this a blunder? I think in terms of, you know, if you're playing a long strategic game and say, as a liberally inclined country that's got limited resources, trying to collaborate with a similarly liberally inclined country in a region where a rising authoritarian China is going to be the dominant power, to take the step that we did, uh, I think was the victory of short-term thinking mm -hmm. around can the Japanese build a submarine in Australia and it might annoy China and, and there's various other considerations. That was really the principal concern was that 
can the Japanese do what they do outside of Japan? Answer, we don't think so. Probably not unreasonable conclusion. What you should have done was say, we'll just buy your Japanese-made boat made in Japan and put to bed this stupid military Keynesianism stuff, cement that relationship, bit of blowback from China, but we can manage that. And certainly the Turnbull government in 2017 showed us quite happy to annoy China with a series of, I think, actually ill-judged set-piece speeches. And then you'd really have, where we would be now is really concreted in a strong strategic relationship with Japan on which a lot could be built. Whereas we're now in this situation where we've got to kind of rebuild that and to develop more effective platforms on which we can operate. And I think we'll be looked back upon as a strategic blunder. Mm. And I think that one of the important things about <coughs> explaining how and why that blunder came about is really the influence of electoral politics political considerations in decisions around foreign policy, you know, beyond this particular issue, I think getting that balance right between domestic and international priorities is really important for Australia in the future. We don't really do a very good job of that, or our parliament does not really do a very good job at balancing those interests. Mm. There's this weird tension between a Liberal government, Conservative government, that all of a sudden when it comes to military stuff kind of falls in love with 1960s industry policy. I think it's partly a complacency that, that's bred from this long-term strategic stability and the US is there and it, you know we can afford to muck around with this stuff and the victory of short-term electoral politics. But also the fact that foreign policy rarely is an election winner or loser. And because there's a lot of bipartisan support for various policies uh, and we don't actually debate foreign policy extensively in this country. It allows more freedom for representatives to take these particular actions. So a coordinated response between Australia and Japan, how can the most be made of that without China feeling defensive? Well, it depends on what the issue is. If you were to do a coordinated Australia-Japan freedom of navigation exercise in the South China Sea, that's entirely counterproductive and would play into the sort of neuralgic tendencies in, in China to no great end, mm. I don't think. It doesn't have any strategic effect. It sends messy symbolic signals. If you're thinking about that bigger, do we want to inflame China and how we manage that is you choose your issues. And secondly, you just have to deal with some blowback from China. I mean, you, that's how things are going to be. They're, we're already there in some respects. And... One part of the Turnbull Bishop approach to China in 2017, which was right, is to say we shouldn't be you know, living in fear that Beijing will yell at us. They're going to yell at us at some point on certain issues. We've got to pick the ones and pick the right ones and have good substance behind it. And I mm. think that's where we, we haven't done it. I agree with that. You know, Part of the reason why we're in the deep freeze with Beijing at the moment is because of rhetoric. And often that rhetoric isn't supported by substantive actions. I'd rather China be mad at Australia for something that we're actually doing rather than what we're mm. actually saying. The classic is the only substantive piece of policy that China's anger is justified in, in the sense that there's something new there is the foreign interference yeah. legislation. Everything else is just talk. This is one of the recommendations that we make is that, you know, the rules-based order discourse, which has been used by Australia and Japan mm. to target China, particularly its actions in the South China Sea, that that rhetoric be supported with actual actions and that declaratory policy does match operational policy a lot more closely than what it has in the past. There's a tricky balancing act there. I mean, I've always been one of these people who's uneasy with the framing of the rules-based order precisely because it potentially sets the bar very, very high. 
everyone has to adhere to all the rules by implication. And that's very hard to do because everyone breaks the rules to some degree. Mm. And people from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing will tell you, we adhere to more of the rules than the Americans and the Japanese and the Australians do, and they're probably right. And the rules-based order, I mean, the only state that's been constrained by that is Australia, you know, resolving the maritime dispute with Timor-Leste. So, you know, not only is it annoying China, it's also not doing anything to change China's actions or interests uh, in the maritime space. So, new Australian Prime Minister, shout out to Scott Morrison. What should he be doing in a relationship with Japan? If I had his ear, I would say you get yourself to Tokyo as soon as you reasonably can. You work on rebuilding a close personal relationship with the Japanese government from a top of government level. It's a, this is a country that, you know, foreign minister, defense minister, fine, but the real business is done when the prime ministers get together and mm-hmm. figure out where the alignment of interests are. The so, circuit breaker from Turnbull. So draw is, a line under the Turnbull relationship absolutely. and make it clear yep. that. The past is the past. And the good thing is there's the continuity of Maurice Payne. She has a good relationship mm. with her then counterpart in defence, um, who's a very effective minister on Adelisan. So there's a good bit of kind of momentum there that you could build on. But So that's step one. And the step two is let's identify two or three areas where the two countries can work together. And they could be relatively uh, not especially controversial, not say, right, let's going to do a joint military exercise next to the East China Sea and show that Australia is going to back Japan in a, in a standoff with China on these hotly contested islands. But to say, you know, we're going to work on ways in which we can collaborate to, you know, whether it's on you know, maritime law and illegal fishing and humanitarian disaster relief, but a range of different things that just so substantively and send signals that we're working together, we're working on interoperability, building on this security relationship to then explore ways in which the sort of more controversial and more important kind of order building stuff can be then placed on top of. They work well together and they can begin to build these coalitions across these countries that can basically to create an order that's not quite so US dependent. Thank you both for joining me today. Ooh, thanks for having us. Pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts and on SoundCloud. Please leave a review. You can follow us all on Twitter. Nick is at Nick Bisley. Beck is at Beck Strating. And we are at La Trobe Asia. And the policy brief can be found on our website, latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>